Well, it is, it is great to see you guys all again here this morning. Um, we are continuing our, our journey through Luke. I got it right this time. Um, and, and we're gonna, we're gonna keep going in, in Luke. We're gonna be in Luke 12, and we're gonna be looking at a story. Um, anytime we talk about stories, I kind of light up. I love stories. I know I've shared with you from here, uh, some of my favorite stories. But I love just getting lost in the world of a story, whether I'm listening to somebody tell me a story or I'm reading a book or a short story or even watching a movie. I love just getting immersed into a world that a story can can create. Uh, My love of stories extends to music, too. One of my favorite musicians is Jimmy Buffett. Oh, a few. Okay, thank you. Well, Well, let me qualify that a little bit. You know, one of the reasons I love Jimmy Buffett, uh, well, it's it's not because his music is particularly elegant, um, and, and it's definitely not because he has the voice of an angel. Uh, but w- one of the things that Jimmy Buffett does so well is he tells stories. Each one of his songs is a little miniature adventure, and um, he's a fantastic storyteller. So I just find myself captivated by his music. The grass skirts are optional. Um, <laughs> But, you know, let's take a minute and think about the power and the the importance of stories in our lives. Um, From the very beginning of time, stories were the primary mechanism of remembering, of conveying truth, conveying history, conveying mythology. Um, Writing didn't come along until several thousand years after civilization was was established. So the primary way that people remembered history, um, whether it was family history or, or maybe tribal history or... Uh, cultural history, um, religious traditions, family traditions, all these things were preserved in story form. And we see this in the Bible ourselves. We see in, in the book of Genesis, Moses is, is the author of Genesis. But when you go from, from the beginning of Genesis until you hit Moses' birth, there's several thousands of years of history that have taken place in that short amount of time or in those short amount of pages. And, and so how did Moses know about all that kind of stuff? Well, there, there were some writings as civilization kind of grew, but um, one of the primary ways was stories, oral tradition it's called. So you would have cultures tell their kids stories, and their kids would hear the stories so many times, and then they would tell them to their kids, and so on and so forth. And so uh, storytelling has, has played a really important part in our history, but it also still plays a, a very important part in our present. Um, you, you can't go anywhere without hearing somebody tell you a story. Whether you're watching a show on TV, you're hearing a story, then they cut to commercial breaks, short stories, people trying to tell you reasons why you need to have this kind of thing or this kind of service or whatever it is. Everything is, is, seems to be taking story form. So I started kind of thinking about stories and, and, and just piqued my curiosity as I was getting ready for this morning's message. I wondered, what's the science behind storytelling? And I found some interesting information that I learned. I wanted to share it with you. So the first article I read was an article that was published in 2014 in the Harvard Business Review. So this is pr- primarily a business publication. They talk about you know, communication strategies, workplace dynamics, how do you motivate people, all those kinds of things kind of focused around the workplace. But they ended up doing a really interesting story about a piece about storytelling. So they contrast the two different ways to convey information. The first is kind of just in a presentation kind of format. I'm just going to relay to you a series of facts. And, and what they did is, is they studied the brain. And when, when that kind of a scenario is going on, the primary center of the brain that's activated is the language center of the brain, right? The part of your brain that takes the noises you make, converts them into words and ideas, and then, and then we can understand what's being said. But then they started to look at what happens when you tell a story. And I want to read a little bit of it for you here. 
When we are being told a story, things change dramatically, according to researchers in Spain. Not only are the language processing parts in our brain activated, but any other area in our brain that we would use when experiencing the events of the story are too. A neurochemical called oxytocin is a key signal in the brain. Oxytocin is produced when we are trusted or shown a kindness, and it motivates cooperations with others. It does this by enhancing the sense of empathy, our ability to experience others' emotions. Empathy is important for social creatures because it allows us to understand how others are likely to react to a situation, including those with whom we work. More recently, my lab wondered if we could hack the oxytocin system to motivate people to engage in cooperative behaviors. To do this, we tested if narrative shot on video rather than face-to-face interactions would cause the brain to make oxytocin. By taking blood draws before and after the narrative, we found that character-driven stories do consistently cause oxytocin synthesis. Further, the amount of oxytocin released by the brain predicted how much people were willing to help others. For example, donating money to a charity associated with the narrative. In subsequent studies, we have been able to deepen our understanding of why stories motivate voluntary cooperation. We discovered that in order to motivate a desire to help others, a story must first sustain attention, a scarce resource in the brain, by developing tension during the narrative. If the story is able to create that tension, then it is likely that the attentive viewers and listeners will come to share the emotions of the characters in it, and after it ends, likely to continue mimicking the feelings and behaviors of those characters. That was incredibly interesting to me. So, so when you're being told some facts, one part of your brain is activated. But when you're hearing a story, your whole brain lights up. You, you start to engage the parts of your brain. You're hearing a story about a, a big banquet with roasted foods and fine wine and music playing in the background. And all of a sudden, the, the parts of your brain that are responsible for taste and texture and sound, they start to light up. You, you start to engage in the experience that somebody else is telling you. Um, Another article I read talked about uh, the, the way that brains process information in stories. So there's a, a logical test. There's lots of these tests out there where scientists will use it to see how do people process logic. And so there's this one test I think it's called the Watson test where they would ask uh, a series of logical questions to see how many people could use logic to come to the to their correct conclusion. And what they found was about 10% of the population could get the answer correctly when they asked it just as a plain question, a very difficult test. So the researchers rephrased the test as a story. They told a story, and through that story, they asked the question. What they found was surprising. 70 to 80% of the people that heard the logical puzzle in story form were able to come up with the right conclusion. So what we see from that and, and some other things is that context is incredibly important for understanding events. Um, and, and really what we see is that we are engineered, created to experience stories. When God created us, he created us to, to relate to each other and to communicate to each other in story form. And so it makes sense that when God came to earth as Jesus, that he would use this storytelling mechanism so frequently. And, and so when we look through the Gospels, we can clearly see that Jesus was a storyteller. He would relate dozens and dozens of parables to people, and these parables are just stories meant to illustrate a point. And so it's another one of those parables that we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to be in Luke 12, and you can follow along with me. And, and just to set the context a little bit about what's going on before we get to our piece, um, at the beginning of Luke 12, 
we've got a, a massive amount of people gathered together. It's so many that it says that the people were kind of being crushed by the weight of all the other people. So people are crowding around to hear Jesus speaking. And so Jesus starts off, as Jesus does, talking about incredibly important and significant things. He's talking about the power of God. And, and he's talking about uh, the love of God, how much God loves you. He's talking about... Um, don't be anxious about testifying about the things of the kingdom. At some point, you're going to experience persecution, but don't be worried about that because in that moment, the Holy Spirit's going to give you the information to speak. So, so Jesus is kind of going through talking about these weighty things, and, and this is where our, our, our passage picks up this morning. So starting in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So, so think about that context. So you've got lots and lots of people here. Jesus is just, he's just dropping truth, right? He's just laying some really heavy things on. And in the middle of that, somebody, somebody kind of pipes up and says, yeah, 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 hold on, everybody. I got a question. Uh, Jesus, my brother's not dividing the money well with me. Can you, can you tell him to do that? And I guess that's pretty bold. I mean, if I was in the audience, I'd be pretty annoyed at that guy. Like, who cares about you, man? We're, we're, we're all here listening to Jesus talk. Well, Jesus doesn't take that approach because he's much better than I am. But um, he also doesn't address the situation directly. You know, this, this man, he, he came to Jesus because he had a problem. And, and it's interesting when Jesus says this, who appointed me arbitrator over you? Well, in that context, in, those day, in that day and age, rabbis frequently were arbitrators in those situations. If somebody had a, an impasse or a problem, they would seek out a rabbi or a teacher, you know, somebody who's respected in the community, is, is wise, is, is a representative of God, and they would say, hey, parse between us, what's the right solution here? But, but Jesus says, that's, that's not my role right now. I'm not going to do that for you. Um, and, and it's interesting that Jesus doesn't just say, well, you know, what I say to you and I say to your brother is just be generous, you know, be, 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 uh, be fair with each other, be generous. Um, that's certainly consistent with some of his other teachings, but he doesn't say that either. He gives a warning. He gives a warning about approaching a situation with greed. Be careful about greed. And, and when we look at the context of this, we see that, you know, this man was asking Jesus to do something, but it's almost as if he didn't hear anything Jesus had just said. You know, Jesus is talking about some very important eternal things, right? Eternal destiny, uh, how much God loves you, what you're going to do when you're persecuted. But this man's mind was so focused on the temporary. He was so focused on the earthly inheritance that Jesus ignores his question on, on, on the top. He doesn't, he doesn't address the inheritance, but rather he cuts to the heart of what's really going on. He addresses the greed. Jesus really, in essence, is saying here, the problem is not that the inheritance isn't being split fairly. The, the problem is that there's greed underlying your actions. And, and James tells us something similar to this. You know, you, you, you know why, do you, why, why do you have fights and quarrels among you? Isn't it this? Because you, you want, you don't have, so you covet, and you, you don't have, so you steal and you kill. And so Jesus is, is really pointing out here the motive. The, the, the inheritance is a symptom of the problem. The, the problem itself is greed, is covetousness. And so before we, we go further into our passage, I kind of want to refresh our, our understanding on the definitions of those two words. So I just pulled up some Merriam-Webster dictionary words um, for greed and covetousness. Um, depending on which translation uh, that you read this story and you'll see Jesus give a warning against greed or against covetousness. And so a lot of times they can be used interchangeably depending on the context. But I want us to get a, a handle on the definitions here. 
So the first one is greed. And, and so that's just basically a selfish and excessive desire for more of something than is needed. An example would be money. But what does it mean to be covetous? Feeling or showing a very strong desire for something that you do not have, and especially for something that belongs to somebody else. So Jesus here has warned the crowd. He's, he's heard what this man has said, and he's warned the crowd, be careful about being greedy. Your life is not defined by what your possessions are. And then Jesus tells a story. Jesus is going to tell a story to kind of illustrate this truth in, in a little bit of a different way, but also to kind of drive the understanding home. And so let's pick up in verse 16 and, and listen to the story that Jesus tells. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So the story ends with a warning. You know, don't lay up for yourself treasures here, but you need to be rich towards God. What in the world does that mean? How do we go about being rich towards God? Well, to understand this, I think that we should take another look at the story. Uh, because Jesus points out the actions of the rich fool and, and, and essentially says, this is how you are not rich towards God. So let's take another look and see some of these areas that the rich fool was not being rich towards God before we can dive in and, and maybe try to understand what does it actually mean to be rich towards God. So the first thing that we see is that the attitude of the man asking Jesus to intervene in the inheritance and the rich fool, they have some similarities. Um, first, the, like we said, the, 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 the man asking about the inheritance was so focused on the temporary, he, he, he didn't really hear anything else. He wanted Jesus to step in and address a tangible situation that was going on with him right now. Um, and, and, and this is not to say that we shouldn't be able to approach Jesus with, with different concerns that we have, right? I mean, uh, Scripture is full of encouragements for us to, to lay every burden down at the feet of Jesus, to go to Jesus and, and, and petition for grace and mercy and help and all of these different things. But what this man was doing, he's sitting here listening to these truths, and he's not asking questions in a mind frame of, how do I learn more about the kingdom of God? He's not seeking to understand uh, in a deeper way what does it mean to follow Christ. He hears all the things that Jesus is saying, and he's saying to himself, I got the situation, and I'm being cheated, I need justice, and that's what I'm focused on. And so, and so Jesus, Jesus addresses that in a very real way, and he does it by telling him the story. So the rich fool we see, um, he, he kind of has the same problem as this, as this brother, but in a little bit of a different uh, way. The, the rich fool, he wasn't really covetous per se. He wasn't desiring something that somebody else had, but he certainly was greedy. He spent his time and his energy growing his wealth. You know, at the point where we meet this man in the story, he's already a rich man. He already has barns and storehouses that are filled to the brim. And so he goes into the season where his land produces plentifully, and he's got a problem. He doesn't have anywhere to store it. And so he, he's got this attitude we can, we can deduce from the story of, of hoarding and gathering and collecting and, and, and really retaining riches for himself. 
But, you know, as Jesus starts to tell the story, the people in the audience are thinking probably, wow, this, this guy is somebody that God really loves. You know, you talk about a rich man, and in that cultural context, if you were wealthy, a lot of people believed, well, that must mean that, that God loved you or you're a very righteous person. And then on top of that, you have a bountiful harvest. That's clearly another sign of God's blessing. So these people hearing it are probably like, wow, so far so good. This guy's doing all right. And, and this is what we need to do, uh, or this is when we need to kind of remember the culture that we're dealing with. So at this time in history, um, it's a very agrarian society. So what that means basically is that most people were directly connected to agriculture in some way, shape, or form. Most people were farmers either on a large scale or even at least a family farm, and they were all very dependent on the harvest each season for their very lives. And we lose a little bit of that here because we live in a global economy. So if for whatever reason a couple of hurricanes come through and they wipe out the the agriculture in all of Florida, um, yeah, things are going to get a little bit tense. You know, Food's going to get a little bit more expensive, but if we don't have any oranges in Florida, we'll just get them from California. If we don't have any grain from Florida, we'll get it from somewhere else. We, we live in a very global economy where, where resources are easily gathered from all over the world. But that wasn't true in this context. They didn't have Amazon. They didn't have FedEx. They had horses and ships. Those were the two primary ways that you could transport goods. And so if you didn't live in a port city, you really just had horses. And so um, it was a very real scenario that if you had a bunch of people not necessarily close to a port city and you had a bad harvest, um, you could be facing a significant problem. And, And hundreds, maybe thousands of people could easily die based on what happened with the weather. So they were very closely tied to the weather. They were very closely tied to the agriculture. And so when they saw a bountiful harvest, harvest, they were very close to that as saying, oh, thank you, Lord, that, that's a symbol of immediate provision. And so that's the attitude that they had when they, were, when they were listening to this story, most likely. But when the man receives the harvest, this is where his true motives are revealed to us. His thoughts are only about himself. It seems that he's finally reached the point that he's been working for. We get this idea that he's been toiling and saving and hoarding and and building wealth. And he's finally got to this point where he now looks and says, I finally have enough. And so then he has a problem. He has several problems. But the one that he thinks is, I have a storage problem. I don't know what to do with all of these goods. Now, as I was reading um, some different commentaries and and pieces on this, I came across a very interesting quote by Charles Spurgeon, which I, I really enjoyed. I wanted to share it with you. He says of this man's uh, storage problem, there were empty cupboards in the houses of the poor and there were hungry children to be filled. So this man need not have lacked room where he could bestow his fruits. But this is not the mind frame of our rich fool. He thinks to himself, I've got all these goods. You know, clearly I'm going to storm for myself. So what do I need to do? I need to tear down my barns and build bigger barns. So, so all of this effort is, is expended to try and hold on to what he's generated. And it's at this point in the story that the realities of life come crashing in. All of his hard work, all the years and even decades of toiling and saving and hoarding, all of his efforts that have been laid to bring himself peace and comfort and security in this life, they're gone in an instant because he reaches this point moments before his life has ended. And so in a very real sense, this man spent his entire life building to a point that he really never got to, really not, never got to experience. And so he kind of wasted his entire life. So we can see from the example, both the brother who's asking for the inheritance and also the parable of the rich fool, that a focus on the temporary, a focus on the, the fading things of this world can cause us to miss out. 
So, so we see greed and covetousness played out in this way. So if, if those examples are showing us things that the kingdom is not, does that mean that the opposite of these things is showing us what being rich towards God is? If this man in our parable would have given away that harvest, would that have meant that he would have been fulfilling what God had for him and he wouldn't have been called a fool? I think the answer for us is maybe, but it depends. Does giving away money make somebody generous? Maybe. Does not having money prevent somebody from being greedy? Certainly not. Should we all leave here this morning, liquidate everything we have, and give away all that we have to those in need? Maybe. But it depends. The act of giving or not giving itself does not give us an indication on whether we're doing what the Lord wants us to do. I think back to the story of the rich young ruler that came to see Jesus, and he says to Jesus, he says, everything the law has said I have kept since birth. What do I still need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus knows his heart. And so he speaks so directly into his situation, and he says, go and give away all that you have to the poor and come and follow me. Do this and you'll have eternal life. And scripture tells us this this young ruler left exceedingly sorrowful. And why was he sad? He was sad because he knew he wasn't going to be able to do it or he wasn't willing to do it. His love for his wealth, his love for his money, the, the, the security and the place that that wealth had in his life was, was to a point where he wasn't willing to get rid of it. And so he heard the words of Jesus and was sad because he knew he would not be able to gain eternal life. But just because you give things away does not automatically mean that you're doing what the Lord wants you to do. Jesus also talks about the Pharisees who in, in that culture in that time would give away tremendous amounts of money to the poor, significant amounts of gifts to the poor. But what they would do is they would do it in a very public way so that what they were done was seen by all. They would parade the poor people out through the town centers and they would bang cymbals and gongs and make a, a very loud and boisterous display so that all could see that it was time for the Pharisees to bless the poor. And Jesus says of those people, he says that they're doing that for the recognition and respect of man. Therefore, that's the extent of the reward that they're going to get. They're motivated so that other people will say, wow, you're such a good person. And so people will say that, but that's where your reward ends. You get no eternal significance. You get no credit towards serving God because your motivation was to to glory yourself, to, to, to have people honor you. And so that honor is the extent of what you'll get. So then what we see is it's not the act of giving, or not giving itself that determines where we're at. It's the motive behind those acts that really tells us, is this service genuine? Is this service really towards God? Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 9 when he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Are we called to be generous in Scripture? Absolutely, exceedingly generous. You know, Christ has has been so generous towards us, and he tells us to then be that same generous person to others. But there's a clear indication here that says, but only do that if it's in your heart to do it. If your motivation is, somebody told me that I'm supposed to do this, or I don't really want to do this, but other people might think badly of me if I don't do it, Can I encourage you not to do it? Because not only are you not getting any benefit of it um, yourself, you're you're not getting any benefit of it. Uh, God's not going to look at that uh, with pleasure. He's going to say, you're doing this under compulsion. I'm not after the gift itself. 
I'm after the heart behind the gift. We're going to see Jesus illustrate that in um, Luke 21. Uh, Jesus is in a temple and he's observing giving. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Objectively speaking, if you were counting the books as the temple accountant, you would not say the widow gave more than these rich people. But contextually speaking, she gave all that she had to live on in an act of faith and obedience. And Jesus says that she has given the greater gift than all of these other people. Just a few passages down from where we're at this morning, uh, Jesus is going to continue to teach his disciples about anxiety and trust and commitment, things like that. And Jesus is going to say this in verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So great, not only are we supposed to be rich towards God, but now we're supposed to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. How are we supposed to do this? What does this actually mean? Is it by service? Well, to a degree, I think it is, yes. But it's more about the motive and the desire behind that service. Many of us in this room would probably not classify ourselves as rich. You know, if we look around uh, our gathering today, we, we, most of us would probably, you know, say, I- I'm not really rich. We, we, we tend to consider rich people the uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous, an old show, but I don't think they have. It's like the older version of MTV's Cribs, I guess. But, um, you know, you look at people with the private planes and the, and, and the mega yachts and the houses on the, on the water, the multi-million dollar houses and, and these, these dramatic shows of wealth. And we think to ourselves, man, those are the rich people. But if we were going to stop and consider ourselves in a global context, we are incredibly wealthy. You know, Scripture tells us what do you need to be in order to be content, right? It says, shouldn't you just have food and clothing? Isn't that enough for you to be content? Those are the basic necessities of life. Well, I can look around here and see that we're all clothed. Thank you. Um, we all just had a, a very nice breakfast, so we've got food. And so um, we have what we need. And so whether you have $20 million in your bank account or you owe the bank $20 until you get paid again, uh, you are and we are among the richest people in the world. We are in a very small minority. We have access to health care. We can turn on our tap water and the water is safe to drink. We can go and get food from lots of different places. But bigger than that, if we're going to expand our definition of wealth beyond this world and we're going to look at history, we are some of the richest people, us in this room all together, are some of the richest people that have ever lived on the face of this earth. So, so what I don't want us to do is I don't want us to hear the story of the rich fool and think, well, I'm not really that rich, so this doesn't quite apply to me. In a global context, in a historical t- context, we are incredibly wealthy and we are incredibly blessed. So this does speak directly to where we sit right now. But I also don't want he- us to hear this passage and think that this is only talking about money. We tend to treasure that which is most important to us. We tend to protect that which is most precious to us. Maybe some of you here, uh, to, to give money away is, is a tremendous sacrifice. And, and when you faithfully do that, you're, you're, you're putting your faith in God and, and you're, you're really stretching yourself to, to bless somebody else by giving financially. 
But maybe to s- some others of you, giving away money is, is not that big of a stretch. Maybe you have the means to give away money, even significant amounts of money, and um, it, it doesn't really test you that much. Um, I, I know for me personally, one of the things that I protect the most is my time. You know, my time is very, very precious to me. Um, like, like most of you, I work, uh, and I work kind of all day, so I leave early in the morning, and I get home kind of later in the evening, and by the time I get home and, and see my family, it's time to do homework, it's time to get the kids fed, it's time to give them baths, brush teeth, read stories, get them in bed, all the things you do to make sure that your kids get enough sleep so they're not terrorists the next day. And, and if you've ever done this kind of a routine or you remember back to when you had to do this routine in the past, you know that those typically aren't the fun hours of the day. You know, it's not the playing the games and all the funness. It's, come on, eat. Okay, come on, we got to go take a bath. Wrangling two young girls into a bath is ridiculously crazy sometimes. They don't want to go into the bath ever. And I put them in the bath and I do a real quick bath and then they don't want to get out. It's like, come on, just make up your minds. But so, so I tend to treasure my time, especially when it's the weekends. You know, that's the time where we can really enjoy each other's company and spend time. And so, so I protect my time very carefully. And, and that's not inherently a bad thing. You know, I think it's actually, it can be a really good thing. You know, whether it's time or money or whatever resource we're talking about, Scripture encourages us to be wise, to be good stewards of what we have and to make sure that we're spending it in the appropriate places. But this can also be taken out of balance. For me... It, it's much easier for me to see a need and to try to address it with money than to, to address it with time. <laughs> I'm much more likely to, to try and give somebody money than to give them an hour of my time to try and help them out. And so I can encounter a situation where I see a need <clears throat> and I try to meet the need with money, but I'm trying to do that because it's easier and less, less precious to me than my time. And so then my motives are not correct. Maybe f- for some of you it's not money or time. Maybe it's relationship. Maybe um, you're, you're reluctant to get into deeper relationships with people because you know, you're jealous of your reputation. You know, everybody looks great when all we do is shake hands and say hi to each other on a Sunday morning. Everybody looks like a great Christian, a great person. But when you start to let people behind that veneer, behind that mask, and we start to see each other as who we really are, as people, right? Broken people who mess up and, and are difficult to deal with sometimes. You know, then our reputation starts to maybe suffer in our minds. Oh, maybe they're not going to think that highly of me. I don't want to get involved in that. Maybe we're reluctant to build relationships because we don't know if we just have the time or the patience or the inclination to, to deal with somebody else's baggage, right? I got enough baggage of my own just trying to make it through life myself. Now all of a sudden I have to get into a relationship with other people and, and worry about what they've got going on. You know, that's a test. and Maybe, maybe that's an area that we're, we're guarded against. But I think it's in all of these areas that our, patches, our, our passage this morning is, is speaking to. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so Jesus in this story, he tells us what the end of this is. This man is a fool because he spent his life building up a self-serving bank account, essentially, the, the, the ancient equivalent of a bank account. You know, he toiled and strove to get to a place where he could finally kick back and enjoy life, maybe for the first time. And so when he finally hits this point where he says, now I've got enough, now I'm satisfied, now I'm going to take it easy, God says to this man, congratulations, you did it, you made it, enjoy your retirement. All 12 hours of it. And I think this is the warning for us this morning. When we seek to guard and protect that which is closest to us, you know, when we run the danger of, of missing out on the whole point. So how do we become rich towards God? It's not by service. It's not by giving away your earthly possessions. It's not by giving away your time or even in, into relationships. 
At least it's not those things alone. We become rich towards God when we treasure him most over everything. When we place our faith and our trust in him continually. When we trust him in the midst of our trials, when we obey him and the spirit's leading into areas that are uncomfortable, when we set our eyes on him, we are making a confession. And what we're saying in those moments is we're saying that, look, the world treasures this and there's these things that I could go after to provide me short-term satisfaction, but I'm trusting in God when he says that my home is not here, but it's in eternity. And so I'm going to focus not on the things that are going to make me happy here because they're fleeting, they're false, but I'm going to do the kinds of things and make the kinds of sacrifices that are going to give me an eternal value. I'm going to do the things that have eternal impact. And when we do that day in and day out, that is how we are building up wealth towards God in eternity. We are, we are choosing that this world is not my end goal. My end goal is to spend eternity. I am spending eternity as a believer with my Father in heaven. And I want to do the things that can bring other people with me into that relationship. When we have that confession that Christ himself is our very treasure, then the generosity and the service that we're talking about, they're going to they're be a natural byproduct. They're going to flow out of us like a wellspring. And they're going to be genuine and true. And the fruits that they produce are going to last for all of eternity because the motive is pure. The motive is right. The motive is God's heart for others. I want us to see how rich God is towards us. We're going to spend some time here in a little bit remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made. And, and that was such a great gift that he gave us, is, is the gift of his life. But it wasn't a one-time gift. This gift that Jesus gave us opened up a myriad of other gifts to us. First and foremost, this gift he gives us of his life gives us life eternal. We are now eternally in the presence of God. We are then called sons and daughters of the creator of the universe and told that we are heirs of the kingdom of God. And then he gives us his very spirit. God himself takes up residence within each one of us and lives and empowers and leads and loves. So Jesus didn't give us a momentary gift with his death, but an ongoing gift of his life. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Have you ever given somebody a gift? And you know that this is something that they're really going to love or maybe something that they really need. And, and you're so excited to give it to them, not because you want them to think of how great you are, but you, you just really are excited that they're going to get something they need. And you're really excited that you get to play a part in that. That's God's heart for us here. It's his good pleasure to give us his kingdom. What an amazing statement. Jesus poured out his precious blood, his very life to make the poor rich. And then he tells these now rich sons and daughters of God to go and do likewise. For those of us who are believers this morning, how are we spending our wealth? How are we spending our time, our relationships, fill in the blank? How are we spending that? Where is our treasure stored? In what ways is the Holy Spirit challenging us to give more, to sacrifice greater, and to press in deeper? The bad news is you can't do it alone. The good news is that you were never intended to. Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit who is going to lead us in those areas. People will say, well, how much money is the right amount of money to give? The Spirit knows. 
What am I supposed to do with this or that or this possession? Ask the Lord. The Lord delights in giving you the answer. He will lead you into truth. He will lead you into doing his will in those circumstances. But you have to go to him. You have to submit your will to his and you have to ask him to give you the wisdom and be willing to receive it when he gives it to you. The good news is he's promised to do this for us. You know, we don't ever have to wonder if the answer is going to be, I'm not going to tell you. It's his good pleasure to give us his wisdom. And then it's his good pleasure through his Holy Spirit to give us the power and the ability to do the things and then to sustain us in those things. For anybody here who, who maybe you're not a believer, you know, my, my greatest desire and hope for you right now is that you would see the love that God has towards you that you would see how greatly and deeply you are loved by the creator of the universe. God and Jesus, they, they, they love you so much. And God knows everything you've ever done, every thought you've ever thought, every action you've ever done in secret. God knows it all. And that thought is terrifying if we think about anybody else having that knowledge. If the person you're closest to on earth knew everything you thought and everything you ever did, you would be terrified of that. But Jesus knows these things and still looks on you with great love. His desire is to bring you into relationship with him. He gave his very life so that you could do this. I, I pray that you would just look at the love that God has for you, that you would cast your cares, cast your very life down at the feet of Jesus and that you would recognize your need for him, and then you would walk into an eternal relationship with Christ, that you would experience the love and the joy that comes with being united to Christ, and you would experience the power of the peace that comes with unity with your Lord. As we think about that this morning when we go to communion, my prayer is that God would impress his great love on you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we think about the gifts that you've given us, the things that you've done for us, and Lord, the love that you have for us, we're so overwhelmed. God, you love us so deeply, and even though we were your enemies, you still looked at us with a love, and you went to the cross. You gave your life to bring us into relationship with you. Lord, I pray right now that you would pour that love out on each person here, that they would see it, that they would tangibly experience it, Lord, that they would know beyond the shadow of a doubt your goodness and mercy and love towards them. Father, I pray for us that know you, Lord, that we would just be open to your Spirit's leading, that we would be willing to challenge ourselves in areas maybe we've blocked off before that we would be willing to step out in faith and to trust in you and to once again reaffirm our statement that says our home is not here, but our home is with you. Father, for those that don't know you, Lord, I just pray that you would uniquely speak to them in their circumstances right now, that you would just overwhelm them with your love, with your grace. And Father, that you would just draw them in by your spirit into an eternally joyful relationship with you. We're so thankful that that's your heart for us. We're so thankful that it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Encourage us, Lord, to keep our treasure in places where it won't fail. 
We ask your help in this, and our faith is in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.